thanks for coming. Uh, welcome everyone to the Cato Institute's Hill Briefing entitled, In the Wake of King v. Burwell, Options for Congress. I am Peter Russo, I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute, and thank you all for coming today. Uh, despite the Supreme Court's June Obamacare ruling, many of you are breathing a collective sigh of relief as you get to avoid making some very difficult decisions. The vexing issue, of course, was how exactly to respond to a ruling for the plaintiff, David King. No easy task requiring wins on two fronts, political and legislative. Plans varied widely from simply making the illegal subsidies legal, as the court decided, or to embrace a range of efforts to patch together alternatives and fixes of every sort. To say the debate was contentious is an understatement, and arguably lawmakers are in an only slightly better position today, with both chambers at odds on what to do in the short term. Even the prospects for eliminating various components of Obamacare through reconciliation are shrouded in doubt. But one thing is constant and sure, Obamacare remains unpopular. Twice as popular as Congress itself, I might add, but I won't. But unpopular, hitting a record low of 39% support just a few weeks ago. Opposition to this law remains a political winner as majorities of Americans are not happy with it, and for good reason. It does none of the things it was sold on. You remember the claims about lowering premiums, you can keep your own doctor, universal coverage, etc. None of these promises have panned out, and it only gets worse. Last week, the New York Times reported that many insurance companies were underestimating the costs of care, which prompted them to request considerable rate increases on plans offered through the exchanges for next year. This is only the beginning. Price hikes, shrinking networks, and the kick-in of next year's employer mandate are harbingers of a great unraveling. So what to do about it? To help get a handle on available options, I've invited today's panel. To my left is Ilya Shapiro. He is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He is the co-author of Religious Liberties for Corporations, Hobby Lobby, the Affordable Care Act, and the Constitution. He has contributed to a variety of academic, popular, and professional publications and provides regular commentary for various national and international media outlets. Shapiro is also the coordinator of Cato's amicus brief program, which has filed more than 100 Friends of the Court briefs in the Supreme Court. He holds an AB from Princeton University, a master's from the London School of Economics, and a JD from the University of Chicago Law School. He is a member of the bars of New York, DC, and the US Supreme Court. Michael Cannon is the Cato Institute's Director of Health Policy Studies. The New Republic has called him Obamacare's single most relentless antagonist, a title he will no doubt retain. Back in 2011, he and attorney Jonathan Adler built out the case that would become the argument for King against Burwell. He has appeared on every major news network in the country, and his articles have been featured in major newspapers and in healthcare policy journals. He is also the co-editor of Replacing Obamacare, the Cato Institute on Healthcare Reform. Previously, he served as a domestic policy analyst for the Senate Republican Policy Committee, and he holds an MA in economics and a JM in law and economics from George Mason University. Uh, Christy Herrera is a senior fellow at the Foundation for Government Accountability, which promotes better lives by equipping policymakers with principled strategies to replace failed health and, wel and welfare programs. She leads the Foundation's Medicaid work and provides strategic direction for their other policy initiatives. Before joining FGA, Christie served as director of the Health and Human Services Task Force at the American Legislative Exchange Council, a nationwide nonpartisan association of state legislators. Christie has testified before Congress and legislative committees in 27 states, and her policy work has also been covered by many national media outlets. She holds a BS in Communication Studies and an MS in Political Science from Florida State University. So let's get started, and let's please give a warm welcome to Ilya Shapiro. 
Thanks for that, Peter. Uh, by the way, there are like five seats in the front row, a couple in the second row. Don't be shy. Come on up. I won't bite and jump at you. And I haven't had lunch, so my breath's fine. So, um, Look, I'm a simple constitutional lawyer. Uh, everything, essentially everything I know about healthcare, I've learned through uh, these two, litigating these two cases, NFIB three years ago and, and now King v. Burwell. Um, originally, when we were planning this, you know, we thought it could go either way. It was really a 50-50 uh, toss-up, and I thought I could add some value by, by explaining the nuanced uh, rules, what does this mean for healthcare or other types of uh, regulatory policy going forward or, or something like that. Uh, given the court's opinion, however, there's really very little for me to tell you about uh, the legal ruling. Uh, I mean, if you really want to know uh, why John Roberts is completely out to lunch, just read Scalia's dissent. I'm not going not to repeat that. Um, uh, there's really very little law, uh, as it were, in the majority opinion. It, it's, it's as if the, the whole opinion just said affirmed. The reasons don't matter because they don't make any sense whatsoever. Words don't have the meaning, they don't have any meaning, they, they have whatever meaning the, 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 the writer wants them to have. Uh, which is a far cry from the following judicial opinion. Uh, quote, it's not our job to protect the people from the consequences of their political choices. Now, who wrote that? Is that, is that from uh, Scalia's dissent here in King v. Burwell? No. Is it from uh, Anthony Kennedy, well, combined with Scalia's dissent in NFIB? No. This is John Roberts in the majority opinion in NFIB. Um, so look, uh, what's going on here um, is an unholy confluence of liberal judicial activism and conservative judicial pacifism or abdication um, that has found a perfect home in the person of, of John Roberts. Um, it's not that the court is liberal or John Roberts is evolving uh, as so many justices have uh, in the past. Uh, you can see that the very next day with his dissent in uh, Obergefell, the gay marriage case. Um, uh, what's going on here is that, well, Obamacare is special. As, as Scalia pointed out in his dissent, uh, all the normal rules of constitutional and now statutory interpretation go out the window when it comes to the Affordable Care Act. Mind you, here it wasn't a matter of enforcing the text of the Affordable Care Act. It was rewriting the text uh, in a different way to um, do what John Roberts thought uh, in his infinite wisdom would cause the least disruption in public policy or in the health care system. Um, and it shows why we don't want uh, judges making these kinds of extra-legal uh, determinations. Because again, this is not a liberal decision. Just like NFIB, if NFIB, the individual mandate case three years ago, uh, read uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's partial concurrence, partial dissent. That's the legal position. There are no uh, constitutional limits on federal power. That's the legal, that's the liberal position. That's not what John Roberts said. He rewrote that law and made it a tax, but sometimes it's not a tax, but it's good for this train only. You know, I won't go into that. If you want to read about that, I have a law review article called uh, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, uh, uh, summarizing the uh, NFIB ruling. Um, similarly here, the liberal position would have been to say, the IRS gets to do whatever it wants, kind of applying Chevron deference, even a stricter Chevron deference. Chevron is a legal doctrine named after a case more than 30 years ago now that says that when a law is ambiguous, courts are to defer to an agency's interpretation of that law unless that agency is being arbitrary and capricious. So, you know, even if the court might disagree with the agency's uh, determination, as long as it's not completely crazy, 
they'll defer to it. In other words, you know, there's A, B, C, D, A, E, F. Each of them are kind of plausible interpretations. One might be better, might, one might be worse. As long as the agency doesn't go for X, Y, Z, which is completely out of left field, uh, they're okay. Roberts specifically in King v. Burwell says that's not what we're doing here. This is not a, a, an administrative law agency deference case. Uh, and that was backed up uh, uh, two Mondays ago in the Michigan v. EPA case, uh, where uh, Justice Thomas wrote a concurring opinion talking about the need to narrow Chevron. Justice Scalia's majority opinion there said that the agency's determination was indeed crazy, was unreasonable, and sent it back to the drawing board. Um, but that doesn't mean, I don't think, that in some future instance, uh, Chevron is going to be narrowed. Uh, I don't know if there's five votes on the court necessarily uh, to do that. So, you know, some people are saying that that's the silver lining in King v. Borwell. It sort of is in the fact that Chevron wasn't expanded. Again, this is kind of a sui generis opinion, good for the Affordable Care Act only. I'm sure some lower court judges will use it as uh, to buttress some future fanciful statutory interpretations to say that, you know, A is equivalent to not A, um, as it is here, that, you know, ex exchange established by the state means exchange not established by the state. Uh, possibly. But really, the way that it's written, um, John Roberts's goal here, as it was in NFIB, was to achieve a certain result without really changing legal doctrine, without expanding federal power, in this case, the IRS, or administrative power. So that's all I have to say that's relevant to King v. Burwell or healthcare. But let me extrapolate from that, because I do have the podium and a few minutes more to talk to you. Uh, I don't know how many of you are working on the Judiciary Committee. Uh, obviously, the House doesn't confirm judicial appointments, but, uh, you know, they have a say over judges and jurisdictional issues and things like this, and some of you will go on to work on the other side of the hill. Some of your bosses will go on to work on the other side of the hill. Uh, and looking forward, the lesson that we can draw, how we can avoid this unholy alliance of liberal activism, of rewriting the law with conservative judicial pacifism, of just restraining and bending over backwards uh, to, do what, to let Congress do whatever it wants, or to not rock the boat, or to do whatever the judges, uh, you know, be minimalistic, as, as John Roberts calls it. And how we avoid that is to learn the lessons of history, and that is um, when in the late 30s and early 40s the Supreme Court started going off the rails and uh, uh, eviscerating the doctrine of limited and enumerated powers, eviscerating federalism, bifurcating or trifurcating our rights such that some rights are more equal than others. Uh, and then in the 50s and 60s and 70s, the, the, the Warren and Burger courts uh, continuing uh, these kind of uh, you know, evolving notions of, of what the Constitution means. The conservative response to that sort of activism was not, uh, you're wrong, here's the correct theory of constitutional or statutory interpretation. It was, why are you not deferring to the political branches? You are unelected judges. You should be restrained. You should be deferring. You should be sitting on your hands. And that's why we have uh, what we have now. And so the answer um, is to appoint judges who are actually committed to judging. And it's to... Um, fight for judges who have a proven record and a track record, might be controversial, of saying what the constitutional, Constitution actually is, of engaging with the law, rather than trying to bend over backwards and, and defer to agencies or to Congress. Um, they're, they're, the, they're a branch of government for a reason, to check and balance the others. 
um, John Roberts uh, checked all the right boxes in terms of had served in a Republican administration, got great grades, uh, clerked for uh, a Republican-appointed Supreme Court justice. It's clear that he's conservative or Republican. But it was never clear that he was committed to any particular theory of judicial interpretation. He's not an originalist, never claimed to be. Disclaimed any membership in the Federalist Society. You know, why would you claim membership in that? You know, that's, that would rock the boat too much. Um, uh, he was a, a stealth, you know, punched all the Republican conservative boxes while still being a stealth nominee. I mean, that's a, you know, congratulations to him. Uh, he pulled one over on those uh, in the Bush White House who were pushing his candidacy. Um, so those of you who are um, going to the barricades to fight for uh, uh, a proper judiciary, make sure you're fighting for the right people so that it's worth the effort. Because just someone who's has displayed loyalty to uh, conservatism or republicanism uh, or some kind of generic uh, 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 you know, red team, blue team fight is not enough. We need judges who actually are willing to um, uh, make, make the hard balls and strikes calls, as John Roberts uh, said at his confirmation hearings, rather than kick the plate a little bit, squint, and, and call it a strike, regardless of what the case is, because Congress intended, according to him, that that would be the, the pitcher, intended uh, it to be uh, a strike. Happy to take more questions along those lines, uh, but that's really what this is about. Um, uh, this is, you know, it's not going to change overnight. It's not a matter of Republicans winning the White House and all of a sudden our judges are going to be fixed. Um, it's a matter of picking the right judges and understanding the climate of ideas um, such that uh, the, the proper judicial philosophy isn't being conservative or minimalist or incrementalist or restrained. It's about judging in a particular way rather than in a, rather than a different way and applying statutory and constitutional interpretation regardless of uh, where the political chips may fall. Thanks. Thanks, uh, Peter and Ilya and Chrissy and all of you for coming here. Uh, I'm Michael Cannon. I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. I work down the hall from Ilya and his colleagues in our Center for Constitutional Studies. I've, uh, I, after the ruling in King v. Burwell, I have a newfound respect for the work that they try to do in improving our, the, the quality of judges that we get. But really, I blame this whole ruling on them instead of, yeah, just kidding, Ilya. So, um, uh, the ink wasn't dry on this ruling before Obamacare supporters said, well, the Supreme Court's ruling in King v. Burwell shows that the Obamacare debate is over. The debate over repealing Obamacare is over. And uh, I've, I've been, uh, I think that the debate over repealing Obamacare has been declared over so many times at this point that I've lost count so many times over the past five years. Uh, it's true that Obamacare supporters dodged a bullet in, with King v. Burwell because what the law actually does, the way the ACA was written and approved by both chambers of Congress and signed into law by the president, it gave states the power to block major portions, major provisions of that law, to block the health insurance subsidies that uh, are supposed to flow through health insurance exchanges, to block the employer mandate within their state, to block, for, to, to a large extent, the individual mandate. The law gave states these powers. And 
Obamacare supporters dodged a bullet because 34 or 38 states, depending on how you count, did not establish a health insurance exchange, which they needed to do uh, in order for those provisions to take effect. So they effectively exercised those vetoes that Congress gave them over portions of this act. And if blocking the veto or blocking the subsidies, vetoing those subsidies would have had the effect not of increasing the cost of Obamacare coverage, because subsidies don't reduce the cost of coverage. They just shift the, that cost from the premium payer to the taxpayer. Eliminating those subsidies would have revealed the full cost of this coverage to Obamacare enrollees, to enrollees in healthcare.gov. And that's what the Obama administration and its supporters feared. I don't really call them ACA supporters because they don't really support the law, that law as written. Uh, they've, they've rewritten it so many times. That's the bullet they dodged. When John Roberts said that he was going to rewrite this law in order to make it work, which is basically what he did, he, he said if the, you know, the plaintiff's arguments in this case are strong, theirs is the most natural reading of the pertinent statutory phrase. Those are direct quotes from the Chief Justice. This is not a direct quote, but I'll summarize. He said, but if we read the law that way, I mean, if we actually apply what Congress actually said to this situation right here, then the law wouldn't work, so we're going to interpret it some other way. They dodged a bullet when he did that because without those subsidies, people would have seen the full cost of this law and they would have demanded that Congress reopen it. Uh, nevertheless, the repeal debate, the Obamacare repeal debate is not over and supporters of this law just don't seem to understand why. Or at least they, they maybe they understand, but they don't want to let on that they understand. And there are a lot of reasons why. One of them is that this law remains unpopular. More than six years after the first draft of uh, Obamacare was introduced in the House in June of 2009, it remains unpopular. It's as unpopular now as it was when it was enacted more than five years ago. And this is a year and a half into implementation, a year and a half after people have been receiving the benefits under this law as rewritten by the Obama administration and the Supreme Court. And a lot of the costs of this law haven't even taken effect yet. The Cadillac tax. There's some premium hikes on the horizon for 2016. There could be even more as some of the, uh, some of the uh, pro temporary programs that are designed to mitigate the adverse selection that, uh, that, that Obama, Obamacare encourages. Uh, as those expire. This law has been unpopular for six solid years, and you know what? Unpopular laws in a democracy are always up for repeal. That's always a live issue if, if, uh, when it comes to an unpopular law. Uh, in addition, Obamacare, uh, uh, the Obamacare repeal debate is going to keep going on because Obamacare hurts the sick. Yes, it throws lots and lots of money at health insurance to, and does insure more people. But it threw millions of, out of their health plans in 2013, including cancer patients and others with severe high-cost illnesses, leaving them with inferior coverage. It threatened to throw millions more out of their health insurance plans again until the Supreme Court uh, amended Obamacare and King v. Burwell. And it's going to continue to threaten, but notwithstanding that ruling, it's going to continue to threaten coverage for cancer patients and others so long as this law remains on the books. And it's not just opponents of the law that are noticing this. If you look at the January uh, 29th issue of the New England Journal of Medicine, the lead article is about how Obamacare is encouraging insurers uh, into, or pushing insurers into a race to the bottom by jettisoning coverage important to HIV patients. And there are other studies that have, uh, that have uh, found that 
The same thing is happening with other high-cost chronic conditions like mental illness, diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, and cancer. This has happened in other markets with uh, Obamacare-like bans on discrimina discrimination on the basis of pre-existing conditions. I could give you examples from, uh, from New York State where they've had community rating for years. I could give you an example from the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program. I give uh, examples from the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program of how coverage has eroded for the sickest patients because the community rating rules that Obamacare puts in place and were in place in other places encourage a race to the bottom and encourage insurers to avoid, mistreat, and ultimately dump the sick. So instead of ins secure health insurance for the sick, Obamacare increased incentives for insurers to do just that, uh, to, to engage in that race to the bottom where they avoid, mistreat, and dump the sick. And it doesn't matter that it's only happening with a few insurers now. Like a, I think the New England Journal of Medicine article said a quarter of the insurance plans that they studied displayed these characteristics, where they were dropping this coverage that's important to the sick, because all insurers will have to follow suit. And the race to the bottom happens, and this is, and the supporters of, uh, of Obamacare will blame this on insurance companies, greedy insurance companies who don't want to pay, the medical, pay medical bills for sick people. They can do that, but it is Obamacare that forces insurance companies into this race to the bottom, and, and this is crucial, that race to the bottom happens even if insurers aren't trying to discriminate against the sick. Another reason the repeal debate is going to keep on, uh, uh, keep on going is because Obamacare and the way it has been implemented demeans voters, and they feel it. They sense that it demeans them. The way that Obamacare's architects designed and sold and enacted and implemented this law has been a six-year-long and ongoing string of insults to the intelligence, the compassion, the dignity, and the sense of fair play of Americans who oppose this very bad policy. Obamacare's architects have lied to the public. They've called voters stupid. They've called opponents evil. Uh, President Obama and President Obama and the Supreme Court have uh, rewritten the ACA now in so many ways that Congress never had the votes to approve and in ways that it disempowered, have disempowered and disenfranchised Obamacare opponents. There, this debate is going to continue because there is or there are ways to provide more secure health coverage to the sick. No one wants the pre-Obamacare pre world where government had already been making health insurance less secure. Even so, health insurance markets, even despite all the things that government was doing to make health insurance less secure, such as an employer-based health insurance system where if you get sick and can't work anymore, you lose your coverage. I mean, this is the horse the government decided to back with a huge tax exclusion that other forms of insurance don't get, a type of insurance that disappears when you get sick and can't work anymore. Uh, even in spite of that tax exclusion for employer-sponsored insurance and all the other things that government has done to cripple private health insurance markets, they were still innovating to develop uh, products that made health insurance more secure. One example is guaranteed renewability. Another example is pre-existing condition insurance, a, 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 an innovation that was happening right underneath Congress's nose as they were debating the Affordable Care Act. It was first introduced in, two, in late 2008. They were getting regulatory approval. The uh, United Health, which introduced this product, pre-existing condition insurance, was getting regulatory approvals in early 2009. 
And what is this product? It's basically an insurance product where if you pay 20% of the premium, you don't even have to buy the health insurance plan. If you pay 20% of the premium, then you, get, you buy the option to purchase that health insurance plan at any time, no matter how sick you get. Even if you develop a pre-existing condition, you'd pay the same rates as anyone else. Effectively, it's health insurance coverage. Health insurance coverage at 20% of the cost of a typical health insurance plan. This was, this was available in 2008. Uh, oh, there are further innovations that, uh, that markets were likely de to develop that enabled insurers to compete, that in allowed, encouraged insurers to compete to cover the sick rather than to avoid them, as Obamacare encourages them to do. But Obamacare destroyed those innovations. If, and if Obamacare were such an improvement, I mean, think about it, if Obamacare were such an improvement over the, uh, the status quo ante, over the individual health insurance market, as it existed before Obamacare, then why do, as Christy will probably tell you, 65% of healthcare.gov enrollees want the freedom to purchase their pre-Obamacare plans? Obviously, something's amiss there. These innovations, though, aren't coming back until we get rid of Obamacare specifically as community rating price controls, and that's why the debate is going to keep happening. Now, what should Congress do? Um, in the wake of King v. Burwell. It should stay focused on uh, what, is, what it has always been focused on with regard to Obamacare, which is repealing it. Because we're not going to get lower costs, secure health insurance for the sick until this law is off the books. That's actually more important right now after the Supreme Court's ruling in King v. Burwell. Because with that ruling, the President and the Supreme Court just created entitlements and impose taxes on 70 million Americans, employers and individuals, that no Congress ever approved. And from which, in fact, Congress specifically exempted those 70 million employers and individuals. The fact that tens of millions of Americans are living under tax, are subjected right now to taxes that Congress never approved, makes it all the more important that Congress repeal Obamacare. King v. Burwell shows that what we're living under right now is an illegitimate law. I like to say the Affordable Care Act isn't perfect, but gosh, it's a lot better than what we've got. How does Congress do that? Well, obviously, it's going to be difficult with the current occupant over there the, uh, in the White House. But Congress can move the ball toward repeal by continuing to, well, first of all, I think by, having, uh, by highlighting exactly what happened with King v. Burwell uh, by approving sense of the Senate resolutions that explain what happened in King v. Burwell, how the Supreme Court rewrote the law despite, clear, despite clear instructions from Congress that govern the status of tax credits and the employer mandate and the individual mandate in states with federal exchanges. Congress should, could also hold repeal votes, or if, if Congress does hold repeal votes, even if a repeal bill does not make it all the way to the Senate, or even if all the way through the Senate, even if it does make it to, through the Senate and gets vetoed by the President, that still moves the ball forward, because it shows that there would be, for the first time, it would, I think it would show that there's majority support for full repeal of Obamacare in the United States Senate. And if it's not, in a full repeal isn't budget neutral, as the Congressional Budget Office tells us, it's a very simple problem, or a very simple problem to solve. All you do is you retain as much of the Medicare cuts as you need in order to make Obama, Obamacare budget uh, repeal budget neutral. 
Other steps that you can take that'll help, uh, uh, that'll help toward that goal is reducing the cost of Obamacare to the federal government by reducing the, the federal match for Obamacare's Medicaid expansion. I propose that, uh, that, that Congress adopt the so-called blended rate proposal that the President himself proposed in 2011, I think it was, Christy? 2011 and 2012 to reduce the federal contribution to, uh, to Obamacare's Medicaid expansion. As far as replacing Obamacare, everyone has their own, uh, uh, their own uh, pet solution. I certainly have mine. But I think that the, uh, the repeal efforts are best uh, supported by focusing on uh, the benefits of the common sense benefits of any replaced plan, which is that people would be able to purchase health insurance uh, at any time during the year. Uh, Christie's organization, the Foundation for Government Accountability, conducted a poll that found that among healthcare.gov enrollees, 83% simply want the freedom to purchase health insurance at any time during the year. And uh, I'm aware of one example, and there are probably more, of an individual who wanted to buy health insurance outside of the open enrollment period before he needed medical care, was prohibited from doing so, and was left with ten, tens of thousands of dollars of medical bills because Obamacare took away his freedom to purchase health insurance whenever he wanted to. Likewise, I mentioned before, and this is also from uh, the Foundation for Government's government accountability's polling, 65% of healthcare.gov enrollees simply want the freedom to purchase their pre-Obamacare plans. Uh, that's another benefit of, uh, that would come from any replacement plan. It's already, uh, it's something that the public already connects with and that's what Congress should be talking about. I would recommend against do it, doing anything that weakens the coalition that exi exi exists, uh, that wants to reopen Obamacare. I would put under that heading, repealing IPAP. I wrote an entire study about IPAP. I called it an unconstitutional, no, I'm sorry, an anti-constitutional super legislature. And if you put a button in front of me and said, would, uh, if you push this bu button, IPAP will disappear, I'm afraid I'd have to push that button. Uh, but Congress doesn't have to get rid of IPAP just yet. It's not going to start taking effect or, or start utilizing its powers. The moment it does, Congress could get rid of it. And until then, there are a lot of uh, special interest groups and Democrats who want to see IPAP repealed, and that can be used as leverage to get them to uh, repeal other parts of the ACA. Same thing with the medical device tax. I wouldn't touch that right now. I would uh, try to use, I, I, would, I would recommend that uh, if you want to do, if you want to le legislate on the medical device tax rather than repeal it, Congress should delay it because you don't want anyone getting too comfortable with the ACA. Uh, likewise, I don't think you should do anything that divides Obamacare supporters, like block granting Obamacare is one idea that's been floated around. I think that if you take the uh, existing Obamacare spending and say we're gonna give it to states and let them decide what to do with it, you're legitimizing this law. You're legitimizing what is illegitimate spending and you're creating a new constituency for that spending. So I don't think that that is actually compatible with repealing this law. I think there's a conflict between the two. I don't think you can actually be for both, although I'm uh, open to persuasion on that point. So uh, the Obamacare fight isn't going to end until Obamacare does. These are some of the reasons why and I look forward to your questions. Thanks. Um, earlier this week, Ilya sent me a little note uh, informing me that PowerPoint was unconstitutional, but... Um, yeah, I'm sitting through this under protest. <laughs> uh, 
despite that, I will, I will press on. Um, my name is Christy Herrera, and I'm Senior Fellow at the Foundation for Government Accountability. For those of you who don't know about FGA, we promote better lives for individuals and families by helping state-level policymakers transform their failed health and welfare programs nationwide. So if you want to check out some of our work, you can do that at thefga.org. So today, I, I guess my role is to bat clean up, and I'm going to do that with a state perspective. And, and now that the dust has really settled on the King decision, we at FGA have really come up with three uh, takeaways. The first takeaway is that many healthcare.gov enrollees are still hurting, and the King decision does nothing to change that fact. Michael mentioned some of the polling that we've done. Um, here are a few questions from a first-of-its-kind poll that FGA commissioned. It is the largest poll ever of voters living in federal exchange states, the 34 states that use healthcare.gov. Remember, these are the folks that who would have been most affected by a decision in favor of King. Um, just by way of background, from the polling that we've done of uh, folks living in uh, federal exchange states and on healthcare.gov, we know that uh, about half of them, 53% of them, were previously uninsured. So most of the people on healthcare.gov did not have coverage. But pretty much nearly the rest of them, 46% um, of healthcare.gov enrollees actually had private coverage. And when you look at that 46%, 42% of them had private insurance. Either they bought health insurance themselves, uh, they got it through their employer, or through their spouse's employer um, or by some other means. So when you talk about crowd out of health insurance, healthcare.gov really produced a lot of crowd out. And while Obamacare proponents are really quick to cheer about high enrollment showing success of healthcare.gov, I think it's important to remember why people who had prior coverage went into healthcare.gov to begin with, and what we found was not encouraging. So uh, we asked the question, which of the following reasons uh, best describes why you switched from your health insurance plan to healthcare.gov? And what we found is that two-thirds of exchange enrollees were forced out of their private coverage. They had a canceled plan, their employer canceled their plan, their spouse's employer canceled their plan, uh, or their prior plan became unaffordable. Just about one in five, 21% of people on the federal exchange say, yes, I went into healthcare.gov because costs were lower. We also asked the question, in thinking about the insurance you had before signing up on healthcare.gov, how have your deductible, co-pays, and other out-of-pocket costs changed compared to the plan you had before? And of those folks who had prior coverage now on healthcare.gov, two-thirds of them said they have either the same or higher out-of-pocket costs on their healthcare.gov plan than they had before. Just one in three, or about 30%, say that their out-of-pocket costs have gone down since moving over into the exchange. So we know that many of the people in the federal exchange, in healthcare.gov, are there because they have to be, right? Not necessarily because they want to be. 
And we know also that even taking into consideration the subsidies that they are now eligible for, thanks to the King decision, most enrollees' out-of-pocket costs have gone uh, up or stayed the same, and they have not gone down. So it's no surprise that if you give people on healthcare.gov the opportunity to get out, a lot of them will take it. We asked the question, if you had the opportunity to regain, co regain coverage you had prior to signing up for health insurance on healthcare.gov, how would you respond? Just over half, 51% said, yep, I'm going to stick with healthcare.gov, the plan I have under Obamacare. But 41% of them said they would switch back if they could. So what does all this mean? Well, the post-King narrative is that the court's decision saved all of the people who enrolled for coverage on healthcare.gov. But what our polling found is that many of them are unhappy. Many of them are paying too much. And many would gladly get another option if they could. So that brings me to our second kind of post-King takeaway. And that is that the King decision also does nothing to change the broad political support there exists today for Congress to make major changes to Obamacare. So I talked about the FGA poll that we uh, conducted, the largest poll ever of folks on healthcare.gov. We also commissioned the largest poll ever of uh, voters living in healthcare.gov states, in other words, states without a state-based exchange. We asked the question to those guys, if Congress reopens the law, how best should they make changes to Obamacare? And what they found is that, listen, there is big political support for Congress to make major changes to Obamacare that improve the law for everyone. More than 7 in 10 of all voters, Republican voters, Democrat voters, split ticket voters, all of them said if Congress readdresses Obamacare, they should change the law for everyone, not just for people who would have been affected by the King decision. So there are broad bipartisan majorities that should not be ignored if Congress uh, decides to take this law up again. Michael alluded to this previously, uh, and I can share some of this polling with you uh, privately or during Q&A. Um, we also asked uh, the questions about specific changes to what Congress should do to fix Obamacare. Majorities of all voters say that people should be able to get their pre-Obamacare plans back. People want to be able to purchase health insurance when they want, not just during the open enrollment period or when the government tells you. And people want to make any kind of subsidies, tax credits, tax deductions, any kind of federal help. People want to follow the person and not just be available to the plan on the Obamacare exchange. And the final takeaway is uh, something that you might not think uh, would be front and center with the King decision, but uh, our third and final takeaway at FGA is that I think because of the King decision, Obamacare's Medicaid expansion becomes a lot less likely in the 21 states that have rejected it so far. So over the past two legislative sessions, since December 2013, we have only seen four states move to implement Obamacare's Medicaid expansion. Uh, Pennsylvania, Indiana with that conservative Governor Mike Pence, uh, the state of Montana, and also New Hampshire. In that time frame, we've also seen two states, both Arkansas and New Hampshire, say, we're going to sunset our Medicaid expansion as soon as it's over in December 2016. So really, we've seen Medicaid expansion efforts nearly grind to a halt over the past two years. 
But now, post-King, we're seeing the president trying to harness this decision and get other states to expand Medicaid. Um, you might have seen his, the kickoff of his tour last week in Tennessee, where he is trying to convince that state to expand Medicaid. Uh, Tennessee rejected Medicaid expansion no less than three times in the past five months. But I disagree with the president. I don't think that the King decision clears the way for more Medicaid expansion. I think Medicaid expansion actually becomes tougher. Why is that? Well, we know that Medicaid expansion covers able-bodied adults up to 138% of the federal poverty level, or FPL. We know that exchange subsidies are available to everyone earning over 100% of the federal poverty level. So people earning between 100 and 138% of the federal poverty level are eligible for exchange subsidies, but if their state expands Medicaid, they would go on to Medicaid ex instead. We also know that states are going to have to start footing the bill for Medicaid expansion costs up to 10% uh, in 2020, and many of those costs start coming online as soon as 2017. But now that the court has upheld the subsidies through King, there is no way the states will shell out their own cash to pay for the people earning between 100 and 138% of the federal poverty level through Medicaid expansion. Crowd out is a huge issue uh, among non-Medicaid expansion states. Um, many states have voiced concerns about double paying for the population who could get subsidies but also qualify for Medicaid expansion. Um, and several states, including um, Utah and South Dakota, have put forth proposals that say, let's partially expand Medicaid up to 100% of poverty. Let everyone over 100% of poverty go into the exchange. Those proposals have been flatly rejected by the federal government. The bottom line is that I think unless the federal government gets more flexible as to who is covered under Medicaid expansion, the King decision has made Medicaid expansion efforts a lot tougher. So with that, look forward to your question. Thank you.